Hey everybody, today we're going to talk about how globalization made uh, the Christmas of 1994 the greatest Christmas ever. We are hitting the end of our content coverage of U.S. history. We're going to talk period nine, topic three, new world order, the end of the Cold War and the new world that, that entered afterwards. I got my dog Ruby joining us on this one because she's a huge fan of the end of the Cold War. It's her favorite favorite topic in U.S. history here. All right, so let's get into it. Uh, timeline, we're going to look at the 1970s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, Nixon, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama. Uh, we're taking a look at those years. So we're going to start by, by trying to uh, cover the, the end of the Cold War. And Nixon, uh, Nixon and Reagan are going to be the two major presidents we're going to talk about here. So Nixon um, is a pretty accomplished president when it comes to foreign policy. So especially with what he was able to do with China and the Soviet Union. Uh, first, let's talk about how Vietnam comes to an end. So Nixon campaigned, got elected in 1968, uh, knew that the Vietnam War was unpopular with the American public, and campaigned that he was going to find a way for the United States to exit the war with dignity. The policy that he came up with was called Vietnamization. And the idea there was going to do two things. It was going to turn the war over to the uh, South Vietnamese. The U.S. would withdraw. But we would also try to achieve a peace agreement with the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong. And we would try to get them to the peace table. And the way that Nixon chose to do that was by escalating the war, by increasing bombing on North Vietnam, by it, uh, launching attacks in Laos and Cambodia, neighboring countries. This was not popular with the American public. And there was a lot of protest throughout the country, uh, especially like in 1970. That's where we got the Kent State shooting and a lot of college protests after that. Nixon was successful at finally getting the North Vietnamese to sit down uh, and have peace talks. And they came up with a peace accord in 1973. And that year, the United States promised to withdraw from Vietnam, laid out a, a time frame to do that. And what Nixon could sell to the American public was that this was the only way to get the prisoners of war, 600-some prisoners of war, Americans, home. And that this, he knew that that was going to be popular with the American public, that they wanted to see those POWs return. I'm not sure if you've ever noticed, but there's still like POW flags all over the place in our country. Um, take a look at any arena, sports arena, you're probably going to see a POW flag flying next to the American flag. Some people still fly them around their houses and yards. Um, and that has to do, this goes all the way back to 1973 with this, with this agreement to try to get these POWs home. South Vietnam would eventually, you know, the U.S. would turn things over to the South Vietnamese and try to provide them with resources and support, but they, uh, they collapsed. The North Vietnamese defeat them in 1975 uh, and take control of that country. China, uh, Nixon recognized, does something pretty, uh, pretty risky here. The American public uh, in the Cold War and the Red Scare uh, had been taught for several decades to fear China and that China was the enemy. They were a communist country. Chairman Mao, the leader of the communist revolution in China, um, was you know, a dictator and, and doing terrible things in China. And uh, Nixon recognized that China and the Soviet Union were having tensions and that they, even though these two countries were communists, they were not necessarily as close of allies as as uh, Americans might think. And he thought there was a chance to maybe play each one off of the other. And then uh, the Americans could gain 
by by exploiting the rivalry here between China and the Soviet Union. And so Nixon exploited that rivalry. He he opened the door to diplomacy with China. He recognized Chairman Mao's government. Uh, and this was always a contested issue. The nationalist forces under uh, Chiang Kai-shek had fled to Taiwan, and they were trying to get the United States to recognize them as the official government of China. Nixon recognizes Chairman Mao government as the official government of China. Uh, he visits China in 1972. He ended an era of diplomatic separation between the United States and China. He opened the door to trade, travel, and cultural exchanges that have continued ever since the 1970s between the United States and China. Uh, so if you're an American business doing selling products to China, uh, you know Nixon gets some credit in expanding those business opportunities for American businesses. Or if you're a consumer, consuming cheap Chinese goods, uh, that's something else that was a legacy of this uh, diplomatic exchange. The Soviet Union, so three months after visiting with China, uh, Nixon travels to Moscow and becomes the first president to visit Moscow. Two countries begin trying to develop some type of cooperative agreements, and they start with like a space exploration agreement. We know eventually that there will be an international space station established between these two countries. Uh, remember that we put a man on the moon under under during Richard Nixon's presidency, that JFK had launched a space program. It, it accomplishes its major mission under Nixon. So the space program is, is picking up. It's getting a lot of attention. The Soviets had a, a space mission of their own, and the two countries agreed to try to cooperate a little bit more in those endeavors. They also reached a, an important nuclear agreement. It's called the SALT Treaty, Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty. Uh, and that limited the number of long-range missiles that each country was going to have in its possession. So it signaled an era that Cold War tensions could maybe re be relaxed with the Soviet Union. The nickname for that is detente. All right, then we get to Ronald Reagan. And this is where the Cold War is going to come to an end under the Reagan presidency. Uh, and there's a, there's a debate amongst the general public, amongst historians, as to like who should get more credit for... Bringing about an end of the Cold War, should it be Ronald Reagan or should it be Mikhail Gorbachev? You see the two of them pictured there on the lower left. Mikhail Gorbachev was the leader of the Soviet Union, Ronald Reagan, the president of the United States. So this would be a great opportunity for like a dueling source short answer question. One historian saying Reagan should get more credit for ending the Cold War, the other historian saying Gorbachev. And what evidence could be used to support either historian? Well, the Reagan evidence is... Now, Reagan took a pretty firm approach with the Soviet Union. He, he uh, campaigned in the early years of his office. He would, he would use phrases like evil empire to describe the Soviet Union. Uh, the picture on the top left is where Reagan gave that famous speech in front of the Berlin Wall where he told Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Uh, and so Reagan recognized that the Soviet Union or the USSR was weak. And if they tried to increase military spending, at the same rate as the United States, if the U.S. increased its military spending and the Soviets tried to keep pace, it would cripple the Soviet economy because the Soviet economy just was trying to do too many things with too few resources. Trying to finance the Cold War, it was to provide, trying to provide all sorts of social welfare and pensions for its own citizens, and then it was trying to support all of these satellite countries. Uh, and, and that was just there was just too many burdens uh, for the Soviet economy to handle at that time. Uh, and Reagan. So Reagan would push for something called the Strategic Defense Initiative, this missile defense program. It was going to cost billions of dollars. And if the Soviets were going to try to keep up with that, it was going to put so much stress on their system that their system would implode. Uh, Reagan also offered covert support to the Solidarity Movement in Poland. That was a key moment in, in breaking the, uh, 
allowing some of the satellite countries, Poland specifically, to break free from the Soviet orbit, uh, and also providing support to the Afghan resistance. Afghanistani fighters were, were fighting Soviet Union um, military late 70s, early 80s, and that was uh, a situation where the U.S. recognized if the Soviets can get bogged down here, that could get quite expensive for them. So those are the things that Reagan's often given credit for on the Gorbachev side of things. I don't have a picture of Gorbachev here, but you can see him on that other slide. Uh, usually the two terms you always see associated with Gorbachev are glasnost and, and perestroika. And those are referring to some reforms that were ushered in to the Soviet Union in the 80s under, under Mikhail Gorbachev. And they have to do with opening up uh, free speech and free press, which would allow people to criticize the Communist Party and the Soviet Union more freely and publish criticisms, and then some free market expansions to try to improve the, the Soviet economy. Things were not going well uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. There was, there was food shortages and, and unemployment problems. And uh, so he's trying to prevent uh, some, you know, so what some historians would say is that like collapse of the Soviet Union was imminent and it didn't really matter who the president was. It could have been Jimmy Carter. It could have been uh, Walter Mondale. But it just so happened to be that it was Reagan, and therefore, you know, the, it's the the Soviet side of things that that uh, should be looked at. But you know, other historians will say that these these reforms sped up that collapse. They made the collapse happen quicker, uh, and it was these these uh, you know, Gorbachev was trying to prevent the collapse, but the reforms the reforms sped it up. It allowed critics to criticize communism freely. It allowed them to run for office. It allowed them, the free press, to criticize the leaders. And there was one moment above all where that became very clear, and that was during the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. And, and by having the free press and by allowing them to criticize their leaders, it became very clear how incompetent the Soviet leadership was during that Chernobyl nuclear meltdown. Uh, Gorbachev also another thing that could be said about him was during during some of these protests like the Solidarity Movement protests in, in Poland or you know in Berlin when we when you had people start taking apart the Berlin Wall. We look at what Gorbachev doesn't do. Gorbachev doesn't do like if you go back to the 1950s what maybe Stalin would have done, which is send in the Red Army, send in the tanks, put down these protests violently. Uh, you know, kill as many people as you want to, lock up as many people as you want to, shut everything down. All right, so so dictatorships usually depend on having a very controlled media, uh, so no free press, and then stifling any form of protest. And Gorbachev doesn't keep either of those things in check. So these protests are allowed to continue, um, and there's no Red Army sent in with tanks, and, you know, that sets an example for many of these other satellite countries. You can see the map on the top left is, is showing you all of the satellite countries that were able to break free from the Soviet Union. Uh, and once, you know, demonstrations are happening in one country, another country sees that thanks to now having this free press. And then, uh, and then you're going to start to see a protest movement pick up in that country after, afterwards. So that's going to spread and that's going to ripple. All right. So those are, the, those are generally the arguments. Right. So the Berlin Wall comes out in 1989. And then the Soviet Union is ultimately done by 1991, and a lot of those countries had gained their independence. And now instead of talking about the Soviet Union, we talk about Russia, uh, the biggest country in the Soviet Union. So Mikhail Gorbachev, Ronald Reagan, there's your two guys. So after that, the, the phrase that George Herbert Walker Bush, he was the president during that final collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, and what he said is that, you know, we're done with the Cold War, and what we're going to enter now is a new world, new world order is going to be uh, the name of the game going forward. 
And that all was playing out until 9-11. And so 9-11 was kind of the next big turning point. Uh, and what we saw with 9-11, the causes, so it's, it's a terrorist attack orchestrated by a terrorist organization called Al-Qaeda. And Osama bin Laden is the face of Al-Qaeda. He, he provided their financing. He was a wealthy a person from Saudi Arabia. Um, he had managed to uh, get the Taliban in Afghanistan to give him permission to set up a base to train and recruit terrorists uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, they were radicalizing people there. Bin Laden himself was radicalized by growing up in Saudi Arabia. He did not like the fact that after the Persian Gulf War, the United States maintained a military presence in Saudi Arabia. Uh, he didn't like the fact that the U.S. and the Saudis were cooperating so much. And the Saudi, Ara- the Saudi Arabia, remember, controls like the holiest sites uh, in the Islamic religion. So Mecca is in Saudi Arabia. Uh, also didn't like the fact that the United States was so cooperative and supportive with Israel. Right? So those are his issues. Uh, he, he, um, and, and so Al-Qaeda comes up with the plans for this attack, and, and they're going to hijack airplanes, and that they're going to fly them into symbolic sites of U.S. power. And so the World Trade Center towers, uh, Twin Towers in New York City, they're going to uh, fly a third plane into the Pentagon, the symbol of the defense um, defense headquarters in Washington, D.C. There was a fourth plane that was hijacked. Uh, it was intending to crash into the U.S. Capitol building in Washington, D.C. Um, the, the passengers on board that plane, United Flight 93, managed to almost take control of the cockpit, and the hijackers crashed the airplane in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, um, before it could crash into anything in Washington, D.C., so there was, you know, there was the two planes that flew into the in the World Trade Center, the, another plane that flew into the Pentagon, and there was also a fourth plane that that uh, crashed in a rural Pennsylvania. And then the United States reacted, and Al Qaeda was hoping to provoke a reaction. Al Qaeda wanted another cause here is what they're hoping to do is is provoke the United States into a long, costly war in the Middle East and increase their presence in the Middle East. That would anger many people in the Middle East, and then Al Qaeda would be able to exploit that and recruit people who were upset by the U.S. military presence, long-term U.S. military presence in the Mideast. Uh, that was the hope. A picture I have on the lower left there, George W. Bush was reading a book to a, a group of elementary students in Florida, in a Florida elementary public school, when, the, um, when he received news of the, of the 9-11 attacks, and then he had to scramble uh, from there to try to figure out what was going on. Um, it's a formative moment in many people's lives. I, I think you should take some time and maybe ask your parents what, what their memories are of, of 9-11. And, and the days that followed uh, September 11th, there was just a lot of confusion. It was a time of great confusion in the United States. And a lot of people have a lot of very vivid memories of where they were when they heard about the September 11th attacks, what they were doing. Um, so afterwards, right, after the September 11th attacks, we, the consequences are important. So the United States military, this is a misconception. A lot of people think the U.S. goes immediately into Iraq, but we go Afghanistan first. That's where the Taliban is. That's where Al-Qaeda is. Iraq comes later in 2003, and we'll come back to that. Um, Saddam Hussein is the leader of Iraq. He had been accused of, of supporting terrorists and also of hiding weapons of mass destruction. And so the U.S. will go in there in 2003 um, the unrest in Iraq will spill over into Syria, ISIS, and, and that whole problem will come out of this mess. Uh, Guantanamo Bay becomes a controversial location. Anybody uh, captured in the war on terror and detained is sent to Guantanamo Bay. 
and deemed an enemy combatant, and there's controversy over how many constitutional rights should those people be given. Uh, President Obama came into office saying he was going to shut that location down. He never was able to do that. Uh, we know that there's been a lot of changes in American culture, that airport security is way different. And you might not know this because you've lived your whole life with the TSA and airport security, but anybody who's flown prior to 9-11 can tell you how different it is. There's also been a Patriot Act that was passed uh, that limited some some freedoms and it made it easier for uh, security people to, to do um, warrantless searches, digital warrantless searches on people's backgrounds and records. Uh, the final thing would be just be to be aware that the U.S. Congress, uh, we talked about a blank check in the, in the context of the Vietnam War. Congress has also issued the president somewhat of a blank check in the war on terror, and it's called the Authorization for Use of Military Force. And the key phrase there is that they've authorized the president to use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons determines, planned, authorized, or admitted, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11, 2001, or harbored such organizations or persons in order to prevent any future attacks of international terrorism against the United States by such nations, organizations, or persons. It's very broad language, and it's allowed presidents to launch not just Bush, but a Bush, Obama, uh, Trump has been able to use this, Biden will probably be able to use this, to launch attacks on a lot of different places uh, with the claim that the group that they're attacking fits the language of this uh, authorization for the use of military force. So it's never been it's never been changed or revised at all by Congress. Sometimes it, it's debated as, you know, should we should we try to rein in the power that we handed the president here? Persian Gulf War and the Iraq War. People get those confused. So since we talked about the Iraq War as a consequence of September 11th, let's try to Remember the differences between the Persian Gulf War that happened in the 90s and then the Iraq War that happened after 9-11. So the similarities, both of them involve the United States going into Iraq. Uh, both of them are started or justified on the grounds that Saddam Hussein has, something, has done something bad. He has threatened global security. In 1991, he had sent his army to invade a neighboring country called Kuwait. In 2003, he was accused of harboring terrorists and also of hiding weapons of mass destruction and not complying with UN weapons inspectors that were supposed to be able to enter his country. And both wars started with some pretty successful US airstrikes. So those, those are the similarities. On the different side of things, uh, the Persian Gulf War is a much more successful war, that's the 90s one, than the Iraq War that starts in 2003. Uh, on the international side of things, the Persian Gulf War had way more international response to it. The UN, the UN supported it. The Arab world supported it. The Iraq War, uh, we got some international support, like Britain helped us there. But then there was some major U.S. allies that refused to help us. France refused to help us. There was, a, there was so much anger in the United States that when France refused to help us, there was a, a motion in the U.S. Congress to change the name of anything in the U.S. House cafeteria that had the name French in it. So French fries were going to become Freedom Fries. Uh, French toast was going to become Freedom Toast. Okay, the tactics. In the 91 Persian Gulf War, it was a conventional war. It was the U.S. Army versus the Iraqi Army. In the Iraq War of 2003, it starts off initially as a conventional war, but then it turns unconventional. And what the U.S. ends up happening is they get bogged down trying to fight this insurgency. Persian Gulf War was a success. It was a quick war. It restored the U.S. reputation. They had just come out of Vietnam. The Iraq War, not so well. The U.S. struggled. Uh, they had an intangible objective. What are we trying to do here? What does it mean to win the peace? This is like the problem with Vietnam, and it damaged the U.S. reputation. The Persian Gulf War was pretty popular with the U.S. American public. The Iraq War, not so much. Pretty controversial. 
Saddam Hussein uh, was able to stay in power during the Persian Gulf War. That was something President George Herbert Walker Bush was was criticized for. He felt like that the Iraqi army was defeated so heavily, so quickly that the people of Iraq would have a coup and, and depose Saddam Hussein. That didn't end up happening. He's held, he stayed in power. The Iraq War in 2003, Saddam Hussein was captured. He was turned over to Iraqi authorities. They put him on trial and he was executed. All right. Um, we've got two final questions to consider. One has to do with globalization and the uh, winners and losers of globalization. So we're in a global era now. Um, who's winning? Well, multinational corporations, if you, if you exist in multiple countries, this is going to be a good thing for you. Service sector workers who, who work with information now that information can be globally shared, that's beneficial. Business owners now have access to larger labor pools, can move their business around can manufacture things in different countries for cheaper labor, can access more markets, digital technology companies, anybody working with personal computer, cell phones, software, apps, and internet and cell phones and satellite networks are going to benefit farmers who have more markets to sell their goods. And that blunder years picture on the lower left, that's me in 1994 with uh, the greatest Christmas gift ever, the Super Nintendo that came with uh, Donkey Kong Country and uh, Super Mario World there. So anybody who likes you know cheap consumer goods, Anybody who, who likes uh, ch cheap digital technologies, you know, globalization has benefited those. And, and what a great Christmas it was for me in 1994. I got all these goods. They were not, they were not made in the United States, but they were pretty affordable for my parents. Uh, and, and it made for a pretty, pretty fun Christmas that year. Globalization's losers. Anybody working in manufacturing, take a look at the chart on the top left. You notice how from like 2000 on, manufacturing in the United States has plummeted. And a lot of jobs, manufacturing jobs, have left the United States. Things can be made cheaper in other places. China, Mexico, Indonesia, Vietnam. Uh, so millions of manufacturing jobs have left the United States. Labor unions, this has not turned out well for them. They, they usually are not supportive of free trade agreements. They didn't like NAFTA. And uh, you can see why. A lot of labor, labor unions traditionally, for the longest time, had a lot of success in the manufacturing world. But as these jobs leave, you know, labor union membership has declined. Anybody trying to preserve unique global cultures, you know, as, as globalization picks up, uh, American culture spreads. And with it, it's kind of like a cultural imperialism. It's kind of taking over other cultures. You, you go to a, a new city in, in the middle of nowhere and you see a McDonald's. But, um, you know, so what we're losing, we're losing a little bit of that local, local culture is being displaced in, in various corners of the globe. The environment is suffered because of globalization. Uh, you know, foreign manufacturers don't often um, follow the same environmental regulations as manufacturers in the United States, and so they might pollute more than a manufacturer in the United States would. And obviously, what we're living through right now it has uh, has exploited the the globalization, a global pandemic, um, because so many so many people and so many things are traveling throughout the world. It was easy easy for that pandemic to spread. So if you're trying to avoid a, a worldwide pandemic. Uh, globalization has not really made it easier to do that. The last question, um, and I put this in here because you are going to, I did reform the notes a little bit. I took out uh, one question and put it, uh, instead put this one in because there's been some multiple choice questions uh, and a test a couple years ago that had to do with this question about uh, growing economic inequality. So I wanted to make sure it was addressed in the notes. So we want to understand that in the United States in the last 20, 30 years, uh, inequality has increased and why, uh, what, what caused that and, and then what resulted from that. So the on the cause side, it's a, it's a number of factors, but um, you know, when, we, when we're saying inequality here, we mean like 
rich getting richer, poor and middle class not being able to keep pace. The chart on the top left was used on an AP exam as a stimulus for that. And so what you should see is you're looking at uh, the U.S. divided into what we call quintiles, the top 20%, you know, bottom 20%, three groups in between. And what percentage, what share of the income they were earning in 1979 and then what share of the income they were earning in 2007. And you'll notice for the high, highest income group, the top 20%, it, it goes up. Uh, and then for like the lowest, the second income in the middle group, it goes down, the fourth, the fourth one even drops down a little bit. Uh, and so those, those groups have brought home less of a share of total US income. The highest income group has brought home a higher share. Why is that? Tax cuts have a little bit to, that, to do with that. You know, the, Reagan passed some big tax cuts, George, Herber, George W. Bush, Donald Trump. And all of these presidents, when they pass tax cuts, they want to make sure that everybody gets a tax cut. But the group that often benefits the most are the wealthy. They often get the, the biggest tax cut. Uh, that's, so that's one factor. Another factor is deindustrialization has not really helped that, that middle income group. So a lot of pretty decent middle class manufacturing jobs have, have left the United States. We talked about that in, in an earlier slide. We've also seen a decline in unions, and that's the group that is usually fought for decent wages and benefits for groups in that second, middle, and uh, income groups. And that just hasn't kept pace with productivity over the last few years. We know that one of the biggest causes of bankruptcies in the last couple decades has been healthcare expenses, that they've been skyrocketing. Healthcare gets more and more expensive every year. Uh, for people, it, it, it eats, workers might be getting raises, but the, what they end up having to pay for health insurance goes up even more. So at the end of the day, it's not really much of a raise for the American worker. Uh, and then the stock market, anybody invested in that is doing great. Uh, that's, that's been awesome. But the, the thing, how does it contribute to inequalities? We don't see many people in the like lowest income group or second income group that are invested in that. So usually it's middle, upper middle, and, and uh, your top income groups that are invested in that stock market. And as that thing increases, it's going to increase the, um, the wealth uh, and, and capital gains for, for those people invested in that. And that can contribute to that long-term inequality there too because it's hard for that bottom group to catch up if they're not if they're not in that system consequence wise what has resulted from this well, we've seen uh, we've seen the rise of some movements in the united states that want to address some of these issues so occupy wall street uh grew out of this this issue bernie sanders has has made a name for himself making this like his core issue of his campaign uh several campaigns for president 2016 2020 we're seeing a big push right now for an increase in the minimum wage up to $15 an hour. A lot of candidates have made uh, a lot of promises about trying to reform healthcare because of how expensive healthcare is. So the latest phrase we're hearing is like Medicare for all. And then in the midst of this pandemic, there's been some, uh, some relief bills passed. And the latest one that was passed under Joe Biden included uh, an interesting tax credit for anybody with a child. And that uh, the hope there is that you know, the, the promise is that it would reduce child poverty and it would, anybody who had a child would benefit from it, but obviously the, the people who would benefit the most, um, it, that it would, you know, giving a rich person a couple extra hundred dollars a month is not going to maybe do much for them, uh, but giving a poor person a couple extra hundred dollars a month is going to have, you know, more of a benefit for them. So that would be uh, one little um, idea that maybe was would be trying to address some of the inequalities that we've seen in this country, economically speaking. Okay, so hopefully you enjoyed that blunder years picture of me in, in 1994, and now you know a little bit more about the modern era. That'll be it. Uh, that's it for the reviews here. 
Um, so take a look at the possible short answer questions, and then don't forget to maybe ask your parents a little bit about their, their memories of 9-11, see what they have to say about that. All right, we'll see you guys later.